God, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see this morning, that you'd give us ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We all want contentment, true, deep, lasting contentment. Deep down, we want to look at our own lives, and we want to say, it's enough. We want to look at our relationships, our possessions, our jobs, our houses, our body shape, and we want to say, I'm, I'm content. I, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm, I'm satisfied with what I have. But the reality is, is that very few of us can actually say that, or at least say that for an extended period of time. And that's because of numerous challenges that we face as it relates to contentment. Uh, for starters, contentment is something that doesn't come naturally for us. This is not something that we're born with. In addition, contentment is not something that you can just develop overnight quickly. It's not something that you can just read a book about and then all of a sudden have contentment in your heart. But I think outside of humility, contentment might be the most elusive virtues within the Christian life. It was the Puritan pastor in the 1600s, Jeremiah Burroughs, who called contentment the rare jewel of the Christian life. We know the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 calls contentment a learned secret. The more you study contentment, the more you kind of discover, is this idea, is this concept even something that's attainable for us? Because it does feel something that's so out there. I think another challenge as it relates to Christian contentment is just the culture that we live in. Especially here in the West, the culture around us has been described as the land of more. I love how John Maxwell describes it. He says that everything in our society is geared to make you unhappy with your current circumstances, your job, your wardrobe, your car, your house, your wife, the place you live, whatever it might be. Everything in the advertising world is designed to breed discontent, to make you unhappy with what you have. I think that we are living in a world where discontentment is promoted with breathtaking zeal. A lack of contentment is in the social air that we breathe. This cultural message that's all around us says to us every day that happiness is found in more, it's found in better, it's found in newer experiences and goods that are just around the corner if you look hard enough. This cultural message, I think Maxwell is right, in our society, it seems to be so focused on making us unhappy with our current circumstances and our current lot in life. For example, if you rent an apartment, the cultural message that you hear every single day is that you would be so much more happy if you owned your own house with your own yard. And of course, if you do own your own house with your own yard, then the cultural message that you hear is that you'd be so much more happy if you had a bigger yard or if you had an extra bedroom or two. You'd be so much more happy if you had a, an updated kitchen or a custom-built home, and, and the list goes on and on. And it's not just the places that we live. This cultural message impacts how we view our cars and our investments and our relationships, our spouses, our wardrobes, our body shape. This cultural message wants you, wants me, to long for more by focusing on what we don't have rather than being thankful with what we do have. In addition, the land of more that we live in, we are surrounded by discontented people all around us. 
And if you stop for a moment, you can actually see evidence of this restless discontentment in just the way that people respond to their circumstances. You can see discontentment uh, when the traffic is slow. The discontentment comes out in the way people drive. You can see discontentment in people's responses to the weather. That's too cold or it's too warm or it's too rainy. You can hear people's discontentment in the workplace where they believe they should be earning more money or be more recognized for their hard work or they're complaining about their coworkers. You can see discontentment in people's marriages or in the way their kids are, are turning out or in their body shape. They're not skinny enough or they're not beautiful enough. And, and yet everywhere around us, people are buying more and more things just to help their outlook on life. This is the land of more that we live in. This cultural message that you need more in order to be happy is in the air that we breathe. And I think the danger comes when it's not just this message out there that we're hearing, but the danger comes when this is a message that we hear even in here. That this message is something that we can start to preach to ourselves in the mirror rather than the message of the gospel. In other words, when you're hearing the message that you need more in order to be content, and you hear that every single day, it's so easy to believe it. In one of the classic scenes from uh, Charles Dickens' novel, Oliver Twist, the young orphan uh, Oliver, who's been working at this workhouse, laboring for long hours every day, barely getting enough to eat. There, there's this scene where he's with his friends and they draw lots to see uh, who's going to go ask for more food. And Oliver loses. And so he politely and very humbly approaches the master, Mr. Bumble, who's this overbearing, overweight man. And Oliver just very politely asks him, please, sir, I want some more. Mr. Bumble is outraged by this and tries to get rid of Oliver. Now, when you think about that scene, Oliver had good reason to ask for more. He was barely surviving with the food that he had to eat. But I think it's important to know that this desire for more grows in the hearts of even of those who have plenty. That this insatiable desire for more often leads us into living destructive lifestyles, especially when we have already all that we need. In fact, we can almost embody that Oliver Twist scene where many of us can walk around this world with, with, with not a plate in our hands, but our own hearts. And we can say to the world, please world, I want some more. I want some more. I want some more. And yet this quest for more is actually not leading us towards fulfillment or meaning. It's leading us in the opposite direction. In Greg Esterbrook's book titled, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse, he argues that in first world countries, when even though there's all kinds of advances related to technology and medicine and information and, and just a comforting lifestyle, he argues that the rates of depression continue to rise. He points out that people, even though they have more, people are feeling like their lives lack meaning and they can't seem to find any remedy to the plague of their constant discontentment. Look, the reality is, is that this issue of discontentment is not just something out there with the world. It's not just with unbelievers, but it's also here inside our own church. 
It's in the lives of many believers who claim to know Jesus wrestling with this idea of discontentment. I feel it in my own heart, especially during the holidays, this message of you need more or you need a, a certain kind of experience in order to be satisfied plagues my own heart. So this is why I think we need this sermon series. I think this is why we need to look at this topic over the next couple of weeks because it's a need for you and it's a need for me. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this idea of what discontentment is and why it's so dangerous. And then in coming weeks, we're going to look at what contentment is, how to cultivate it, and how to protect our own hearts from common thieves that want to rob contentment and our joy in Christ. And so today, we're going to look at the land of more, things that never satisfy from Proverbs chapter 30. When we look at these verses in 15 and 16, it paints a picture of what discontentment is and why it is so dangerous. Now, some of these um, uh, image, imageries are so vivid and they are so graphic, but the point is, is that uh, the one who's, who's written these Proverbs is trying to show us things that are never satisfied. And I know when you read these verses, you're wondering, like, what in the world is this talking about? Like, we're talking about leeches, we're talking about fires, we're talking about barren wombs, we're talking about shield. What does this have to do with contentment? Well, the author of this proverb is a man by the name of Agur, and he lived most likely as a contemporary to King Solomon. King Solomon wrote many of the proverbs. He also wrote Ecclesiastes, the book of, about how to find meaning in life. And what Agur is doing is he's describing things that can never experience the concept of enough using a unique poetic formula. I want you to notice in verse 15, he says that the leech has two daughters, give and give. Okay, now a leech is a, a worm-like parasite in the water that likes to suck blood. Okay, they swim well, they attach onto their victims, and with their sharp teeth, uh, they can penetrate the skin and then release an enzyme that causes the host to bleed, and then they suck as much blood as they want. Okay, that's the imagery that Agur wants us to think about as it relates to discontentment. Now, within this metaphor, he says that the leech has two daughters, give and give. This either means that the daughter's names of the leech are give and give, or some translations have it that the leech's daughters are crying give and give. Now, with, with either one here, the point is the same, that leeches within this metaphor are producing more and more bloodsuckers, and their offspring have the same message, give us blood, give us blood, give us more blood. They are never satisfied. Okay, so this leech is serving as a vivid and graphic picture of what discontentment is all about, that the discontented heart is like a leech. It sucks from possessions, it sucks from relationships, it sucks from pleasure, from achievements, from approval, from all of these things, wanting more and more and more. Now notice the second half of verse 15. He says, three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Okay, now Agur is continuing his illustration of discontentment, but now he's changing up the poetic formula. He's now using a poetic formula that was very popular in the Old Testament, specifically with the prophets. When the prophets wanted to kind of drop a truth bomb, they would say three things are true. No, four are true. And then they would say something very profound. Well, Agur is doing the same thing. And what he's talking about here, again, 
are things that never satisfy. These are things that they never experience, this concept of enough. Well, what are the things that he lists? Well, verse 16 provides four of them. Talks about Sheol, talks about barren wombs, talks about dry land and fire. The point with each four of these images here is that a desire is never satisfied by obtaining that which it desires. That we have certain desires that are often insatiable, creating this perpetual longing for more and more. Let's look at each of these four just briefly here. First, the sheol or uh, the grave. This was the place of the dead in the Old Testament. And Agur is uh, making grave, he's kind of personifying a grave here, that if a grave had desires, it would never be satisfied. I mean, how many people have died? How many people have been buried? And yet does the grave ever say, okay, that's enough. I'm satisfied. That, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. No, a grave wants more and more. Secondly, the barren womb. Same truth is found here because again, how many women are barren and yet crave a child? That desire is, is not satisfied. They're, they're wanting more. They're wanting a child. Third, the dry earth, the dry parched lands. They crave water as they bake in the sun. Even with with rainfall, they are never satisfied. They want more and more. Then fourth, the fire. We've seen this on the West Coast this year, especially. A fire never says, okay, I'm good. I'm going to stop now. I'm satisfied. No, fire just keeps going on and on, consuming more and more. Look, with one illustration after another, Agur drives the point home. The discontentment is when you are trying to find satisfaction by, by trying to obtain that which you desire. And yet the reality is, is that even if you do obtain that which you desire, you'll never experience lasting satisfaction or lasting contentment. It actually leads you to craving more and more. You have one desire that's fulfilled, six more are going to pop up. And you pursue all those, and there's this perpetual longing for more and more. I think this desire is in each of our hearts. It's like a leech sucking for more and more blood. But this passage, I think, so accurately describes not only the land of more that we live in, but this passage is describing what is in your heart and what is in my heart, this longing for more. And you might be wondering, okay, Chris, we can see the danger of this. We can see how destructive discontentment can be in our lives when it goes unaddressed. Let's, let's now look at the gospel and see how this addresses discontentment. Well, we will get there eventually, but before we do, I think we need to better understand what discontentment is all about before we can actually address this thing. Because I think discontentment is way trickier than you may think. There are layers to discontentment that the more you peel away, the more you see how interconnected it is with sin. And so this morning, I want us to see four descriptions of discontentment before we can actually address this in coming weeks. And before we get to the first one, I I do just want to say that discontentment is different than having difficulties. Discontentment is different than just having a hard day. It's different than grieving. It's different than being in a rough patch or being in, in a sad season of life. Discontentment is different than difficulties because it's not just a season, but it's a condition of your heart. 
It's a long-standing condition of your heart where you're not allowing God to enter that space within your heart. You're stiff-arming God as you're yearning and longing to be satisfied. That's very different than the difficulties and trials in life that we experience. I'll talk about that more here later on. But here, here are four descriptions I want us to understand before we can actually address this. Number one, discontentment springs from unmet expectations. Springs from unmet expectations. Discontentment focuses on what we lack, right? And, and sometimes, look, we, we think we deserve a certain kind of life, we think we deserve a certain kind of life with a certain amount of comfort and ease and luxuries and experiences. And we become discontent when we don't get that life that we think we deserve. And then what tends to happen is we slip into this entitlement where we think, no, no, I deserve that life though. Like I've done A, B, and C over here. This is the life that I expect. This is the life that I want. I've sacrificed here. I've done this. This is what I should get in return. And when we don't, discontentment starts to, starts to grow within our own lives. And yet, if we soberly examine ourselves in light of the scriptures, I think what we would find is that our expectations are not too lofty, but our expectations are misplaced. In other words, if, if you kind of unpack this, this line of logic for a moment, that yes, we do expect a certain kind of life. We all do. We expect certain kinds of experiences, certain kinds of comforts. And yes, it's true that when we don't experience that, we now are left with discontentment. That's absolutely true. But take it a step further here. Let's say that you do get that experience that you expect, that you want. Let's say you do get the life that you want and that you have planned. Even when you do get what you want, it doesn't bring about lasting satisfaction and lasting contentment because so often we are looking to temporal things to satisfy particular desires that God has given us that can only be satisfied with an eternal God. There are desires and cravings and longings that God has put within your heart that can be only satisfied with himself. And I think discontentment comes when we expect things of this world to satisfy these desires when we were actually made for more. And so one area that you're going to be challenged with over the next couple of weeks has to do with your expectations, expectations for your own life, for your relationships, your, your marriage, your children, your job, your, your body shape. I mean, you go all throughout the line there. And yet, it's not just the level of expectations, but it's the object that you're using in order to experience contentment. I want you to hear this this morning. The goal of this sermon series is not to shrink your expectations. The goal of this sermon series is to challenge the means by which you are using in order to experience contentment and satisfaction. Okay, and that's something that we're going to see in, in coming weeks here. Number two, though, another description of discontentment is that it is an expression of pride. It is an expression of pride. Discontentment flows from a heart that says, I deserve better than what God has given me. I deserve better than what God has given me which is pride. 
I mean, that, that is pride. If we put vocab to pride, pride says that I'm not sure God knows what he's doing right now. That this lot in life God has given me, I'm not sure this is best for me. I, I think God could do something different. And discontentment really is an expression of unbelief in God and it is very, very dangerous. Sometimes we don't talk about contentment because we dress it up as something different, don't we? We, we call it uh, aspiration or we call it being driven or we call it, you know, working hard. We, we almost can call it a virtue where we're saying, I'm just trying to grow. I'm just trying to achieve things. And yet underneath the veneer there is discontentment. In the often overlooked book of Jude, we have a, a reference in verse 6 to the fallen angels who, like Satan, were not content to be servants of God. Verse 6 says this, that angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Pride led some of these fallen angels to say that we deserve better than what God has given us. God gave them positions of authority, but they were not content with it. They are not content now, and they never will be. Thomas Boston, a Scottish theologian in the 16 and 1700s, puts these two thoughts together. He says that the devil is the proudest creature and the most discontented because pride and discontent lodge under one roof. Look, we have to be careful about when we talk about discontentment, that this isn't just some type of idea that we should pursue, but this idea of discontentment is very much connected to different aspects of sin. I think if we pause for a moment, we just thought about discontentment in our own hearts. I think we would hear an internal dialogue that often takes place. I've noticed this in my own life. It goes something like this, where we say, God, the life that you've given me is not the life that I want. This life is, is not fulfilling me. This life is not satisfying. Now, if you just stop there for a moment in this internal dialogue, and you're bringing this before the Lord, you're lamenting this before God, that's appropriate. A lot of the Psalms encourage us to do that. But a discontented, prideful heart takes it a step further and says to God, therefore, God, you're not good. Therefore, God, you don't know what you're doing. Therefore, God, you need to fix this. You need to change my circumstances. See, if we're not careful, a prideful, layered discontentment can lead to eroding trust in the goodness of God. We look at some of the aspects of, uh, of the emptiness that we feel, some of the voids in our lives, and we can bring those before God and we say, God, I thought you were good. You need to fix this. You need to change this. You need to make me happy, make me satisfied, or else I, I don't know that you're good. And it can so often want to prove, want to ask God to prove that he's good within our own lives. So we need to be careful of what we see underneath discontentment. Thirdly here, another description of discontentment you need to be aware of is that it's rooted in the someday mentality of life. Again, you might think that with our modern world that contentment would be easier. I mean, we have more conveniences, we have more comforts, we have more wealth, but what comes with those things are more choices. And we have an endless amount of options to choose from, and each of them are trying to convince us that they will satisfy us, that they will bring contentment into our lives. 
And so it's easy to constantly feel like there's something out there that will bring about contentment in my heart. I just need to find it, right? We've talked about this before, this idea of FOMO, fear of missing out, this perpetual tendency to having that fear of missing out that I need to pursue and have more in order to be satisfied. Our hearts are are restless, they are hungry. And when you add on top of that, this sense of entitlement that we think we deserve a certain kind of life, that is a perfect recipe for discontentment. And yet what I think is underneath that is this mentality of life called someday. I know we've all said this before, maybe in our own hearts, but when we say someday, when I have X, then I'll be satisfied. Someday, when I get married, then I will be content. Someday, when I have kids or uh, certain well-behaved kids, then I will be content. Someday, when I have that job or when I make a certain kind of money, then I will be content. Or someday when my body looks a certain way, then I will be content. And yet this someday mentality of life is incredibly dangerous because it convinces us that you can't be content right now here in the present. Your contentment is out there in the future. That silver bullet of contentment is somewhere out there, but it's down the road and it's not right here today. I think it rejects God's good providential grace that is enough for us today that helps us to find contentment in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Well, fourth here, the last aspect of discontentment I want us to understand is that discontentment is really disordered doxology or disordered worship. This paralyzing discontentment is due ultimately to having a misplaced object of our worship. David Foster Wallace um, writes about this idea of, of worship and discontentment. Long quote here, but it's really good. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, and you will end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious, They are default settings. So much of discontentment comes when we have misplaced worship. Rather than enjoying God in his rightful place, that God is is pretty much like the sun, which everything else in life orbits around, so often we dislodge him and replace him with a mirror. That instead of God being at the center, kind of the gravitational pull, everything else spins off in a thousand different directions. Really, the, the insanity of discontentment comes is when we take God out of the center of the universe, out of the center of our own lives, and we replace him with other things, other possessions, relationships, and pleasure. What ends up happening As those things don't satisfy us, those things end up enslaving us to them, whereby we worship them. Look, when you get down to it, discontentment is a worship problem. And something that we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that the answer 
to discontentment for many of us is not owning less, it's not having less, but it's worshiping God more. Because discontentment, it's not a, it's not a possession issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart problem. And oftentimes, we worship our way into discontentment, looking to these other things for satisfaction. So the answer is to worship our way out of discontentment by worshiping God for who he is. And I love, I love this concept of discontentment because on one hand, it's really discouraging. Like when you're honest and you look within your own heart and you see just how discontent you actually are, like, yes, that's discouraging, but it shines a spotlight in how patient and how gracious our God actually is. If you think about that, think about the heart of God for a moment. Not only has he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins in order to save his enemies, not only did he, did, did he do that, but God also gives us all that we need according to the riches of Christ Jesus, that he gives us everything we need to live a godly life. God's done all of that, and yet we still fall into these seasons of pursuing these other things in this world to find satisfaction and to find contentment. And I love this about God is that God doesn't just give up on us. God doesn't say, okay, find, find your own way out of that mess. No, God steps into our mess, steps into our weakness, steps into our sin and helps us out of the pit by showing us that we were made for more. We were made to worship him. So I'm excited to actually use this idea of contentment to deepen our worship for God, to deepen our need for him. And these are some of the aspects that we're gonna see over the next couple of weeks. But one of the goals that I have in this sermon series is that we would feel the danger of discontentment, that we would understand that, that there, is, there are all kinds of destructive things that, that come about when we fail to address discontentment in our lives, that this is a ferocious threat to our joy in Christ, that discontentment really is an expression of unbelief in God. It questions God's wisdom. It questions God's goodness. It questions his grace in our lives but it also blinds us to the needs of others. It makes us so selfish and so, so consumed with ourselves. It puts at the center of our being our own needs, our own wants, and our own expectations. And yet at the end of the day, discontentment ultimately robs us of joy in Christ, which will impact our witness to a watching world. I mean, if you think about it, we're trying to, to showcase the world that Jesus is enough, that Jesus has saved us, that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. And yet when the watching world looks at Christians who are not content in Christ, do you know what they're saying? They're saying, why would I believe in your Jesus when, when he's not even satisfying you? Why would I believe in Jesus when you need all of these other things to make you content? You're, you're just like me, except you go to church on Sundays. And so having a group of people, a group of Christians who are content and satisfied in Jesus, I think is the, one of the most effective tools in evangelism to a watching world. As I close this morning, I want to provide some questions for us to, to reflect upon, just to be able to help answer the question, how do I know if I'm discontent? 
Because remember, I think we, we do dress up discontentment. We call it something else. We make it a virtue in our own way. So these questions are going to get at how you might discern if you're struggling with discontentment. Here are the four here that we're going to spend some time reflecting. Number one, are you complaining? Are you complaining? I think we grumble and complain much more than we think. Again, I think we call it something else. But grumbling is code for God. You're getting this wrong. It's arguing with God. I think it's a sign of discontentment. Secondly, am I worrying? Worry says that I'm not sure everything will be okay. And in fact, that thing that you're worrying about, if it doesn't go well in the future, worry is basically an expression that I'm not sure God's grace will be enough if this thing doesn't go well. I think many people sit in the bondage to worry, usually about something in the future, and I think it robs them of joy and contentment in the present. Thirdly, are you living with an if-only mentality? Again, if only I have this job, if only my body looked a certain way, if only my kids were behaved this way, if only I have this relationship, then I'll be content. Fourthly, are your desires restless? Are your desires wandering? Are you, are you not funneling them into an eternal God, but, but funneling into the things of this world that will lead you toward discontentment? So I want you just to spend the next couple of minutes just kind of thinking about these questions, allowing the Spirit of God to kind of examine your own heart, maybe reveal your need for contentment and joy in Christ. Let me pray for our time of reflection. God, we pray these next couple of moments that you would, Lord, help us to be still. Help us to hear. Lord, help us to respond to your voice in the ways that you're convicting us because, God, we want to be content and satisfied with Jesus. So Lord, help us to see that in Jesus' name. Amen.